0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The first time in more than two decades, we are getting updates for the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. You know, a lot has changed in 20 years, but critics are concerned that this act doesn't update enough to reflect what's going on in our world. For instance, take take the issue of genetically modified animals, whether it's salmon or even a genetically modified fruit fly. Canada's facing a new reality out there and our regulations aren't necessarily reflecting that. Well, joining us now to talk about this is Mark Butler, Senior Advisor at Nature Canada. Mark, thanks for joining us.
1: Pleasure, and good morning from Nova Scotia.
0: Oh, nice to have you here from Nova Scotia. It's actually mid-morning for you. Uh, let's talk about these updates. Why are there so many concerns about what the Act doesn't include?
1: Okay, so so this Act, uh, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, uh, regulates all the toxic chemicals uh, that we use um, and that we want to uh, keep ourselves safe from and protect the environment. And it also regulates genetically engineered animals. And as you've said in your uh, great introduction, uh, one of the first genetically engineered animals uh, to be available has been this uh, genetically engineered uh, salmon. And now there are proposals for other genetically engineered animals. The technology has developed uh, immensely in the last uh, 20 years when the the act hasn't been updated, as you said, since uh, 1999. You know, back in 1999, we hadn't sequenced sequenced the human genome. uh, The uh, gene-changing tool called uh, CRISPR hadn't been invented. So there's a huge need Uh, To update the act, Uh, the act is really poor when it comes to engaging the public and and getting their thoughts. And it tends to uh, favor industry. So we've been pushing hard for changes to modernize the act. Unfortunately, uh, the government uh, recently uh, rejected our changes.
0: What kind of changes were you looking for?
1: So... um, and it's not just us, uh, the uh, the Environment Committee of the House of Commons, which is a multi-party uh, committee, uh, reviewed the act in 2017 and uh, fully agreed with us that it needed to be modernized when it came to regulating genetically engineered animals. Uh, the level of public participation in the approval of, uh, of genetically engineered animals is almost nil. It's a really... Uh, It's not a transparent or accessible process. Also, um, uh, we uh, introduced this idea of need to. uh, Let's ask some questions. Do we need this organism? Is it worth the risk? Uh, What we're really trying to do here is to protect nature. That's our main concern, that these genetically engineered animals could escape and breed with wild animals. And as we know, nature's in trouble. Uh, So let's not put an unneeded, uh, unnecessary risk on nature. You know, right now, it's uh, when I say salmon, I'm talking about a genetically engineered Atlantic salmon, but you're in B.C., and of course, uh, salmon is uh, a really important animal out there. The next genetically engineered animal... Uh, could be uh, a BC species of salmon, and right now the process for public input on that is extremely limited. It's actually voluntary in nature. And also uh, very little recognition that when it comes to species like salmon, uh, these are extremely important to Indigenous peoples, and uh, Indigenous peoples should be involved in any decision to alter the gene of a species like salmon.
0: So if a company does decide to do this or researchers try to do this, what kind of guidelines are in place for them to move forward and just do that?
1: So on the public um, on the public uh, consultation side, very little. So and actually we we had inserted a language into the act or actually not we, uh, the Senate, because the uh, the bill, this bill that is amending Sepa started in the Senate and uh Senators uh, made some amendments, including w- one around uh, a meaningful public participation. But unfortunately, the government, uh, with the support of conservative MPs, uh, removed that. And we find that quite startling. Like, really, why would you be against uh, um, meaningful uh, public participation? The other part of it is that the w- act right now is really weighted towards approval of chemicals or genetically engineered animals the emphasis is really on us uh, say conservationists to, to prove there's a risk um, I don't know if I should get into this but they're they right now they use a, a very simple equation to assess the, the risk of a genetically engineered animal or chemical it's a hazard uh, times exposure uh, which basically means even if the hazard is really high. If the company says, oh, don't worry, there won't be any exposure, then the thing gets approved. But our concern, uh, be it uh, genetically engineered salmon or uh, other creatures, is that the longer these things are produced and in multiple facilities, the exposure, the risk of exposure and escape just goes up and eventually these animals will escape. Right. And I should mention that... um, uh this is not just uh, uh you know uh, uh what's the word you know this has actually happened um uh, in brazil uh, in 2022 brazilian uh, scientists recorded the uh first ever genetically engineered fish uh breeding in the wild so it's uh, so it, it has now happened, and we need to take measures now to prevent it from happening again.
0: Mark, you know what this sounds like to me? It sounds like for we, it always seems like we're behind when it comes to technology, right? The technology races ahead of us, and we have trouble catching up. So even if we modernize this, are we not looking ahead to the next, say, 20 years?
1: Well, exactly. I, and you know the, what the government has said to us is, don't worry, we'll get to this the next time we update the act. Uh, but who knows when that will be. And you're you're, you're very uh, right. Uh, yes, legislation is always um, uh, trying to catch up with the technology, but there's a bunch of mechanisms that you can put in place uh, to reduce that, and one certainly is a good public consultation. Uh, others are to ask questions like, is this organism needed? For example, this genetically engineered salmon that is now being grown in PEI and was in, uh, by the way, in Canadian stores, but unlabeled. So if you ate uh, uh, Atlantic salmon, uh, farmed Atlantic salmon, it's possible you could have ate a genetically engineered salmon and not know it. Um, but we can, uh, we can put measures in place to reduce uh, the downside risks of this Technology and to ensure that there's adequate consideration. And right now, we don't have that.
0: All right. Well, listen, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Well, thanks for your interest. That's Mark Butler, Senior Advisor at Nature Canada, raising concerns about the changes that are coming to the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Ottawa's in the process right now of updating this, first time in 22 years. But as you heard the concerns there, their updates, you know, critics feel don't go far enough. This
2: is Mornings with Simi.
0: Now, a week ago, a lot of us hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank. Now, we can't stop hearing or reading about it because there are deep concerns about what the collapse of this bank is going to do to the rest of the economy. The fall happened so rapidly, it seems like, right? There was a run on the bank when depositors tried to get their money out and then things had shut down by midday Friday. So if you've seen the headlines and wondered, what is this about? How's it going to affect me? Well, let's find out. Barry Knapp has been around on Wall Street since 1984, has had a front row seat to quite a few financial crises, including the collapse of Lehman Brothers. He's a research director at Ironside's Macroeconomics, LLC, and joins us now. Barry, thanks for being here. Good morning. First off, Barry, what was Silicon Valley Bank?
3: Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the um, largest lender to the venture capital sector. Um, They were a sleepy little bank, you know, 10 years or so ago, but really did decide on a business model where they would really integrate themselves into the whole venture capital uh, ecosystem. And so they became, you know, the business account or of choice. They did quite a bit of lending to the um, uh, venture capital sector. And um, really when they're, you know, the the real story here that's most interesting is what happened to Silicon Valley Valley bank during the pandemic. Now, you know, we've long maintained, at Ironsides and back to my days at Barclays and BlackRock, that large scale asset purchases were not costless, that they the second order effect, which the Fed refuses to discuss. In fact, I saw former Fed Chairman Bernanke speak at a conference back in October, and he just almost refuses to even entertain these thoughts that they create um, what's the Austrian economists would refer to as malinvestment, investment going into uneconomic uh, areas that um, could only exist with interest rates at zero and the Fed buying up a third of the bond market. And so that's really what happened at Silicon Valley Bank was during the 20 and 21, 21 in particular, excessive monetary policy and actions of the Treasury easing that their deposits exploded from $60 billion to almost $190 billion in a three-year period of time.
0: Then, What did they do with
3: that? Well, that's that therein lies the the big problem was uh, at the time interest rates were zero. So if they left the money undeposited at the fed, they would have earned eight basis points or so. Um, They decided to, um, lend out what they could lend out to the venture capital industry. So they wound up with $70 billion categorized as other commercial loans, which we can only imagine that when the various banks that looked at them this weekend, like PNC Bank out of Pittsburgh, a very high quality, large regional bank, walked away from it, they may very well have viewed that loan portfolio as unanalyzable. And, and it's sort of a funny term, unanalyzable, but that was how Bank America described ours, meaning Lehman Brothers' commercial real estate portfolio back in that fateful weekend in 2008. And that $36 billion was only was a much smaller percentage of our total of $600 billion of assets. In the case of Silicon Valley, it was $70 billion of loans against $210 billion of assets. So that, no doubt, was a big problem. But then that wasn't enough. obviously, seventy billion is a small percentage of those one hundred and ninety billion of deposits. So what they ended up doing was buying quite a few long duration uh, mortgage-backed securities now un- undoubtedly they 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 couldn't have hired any former mortgage trader from Wall Street to do that investment investing for them because no one and I know lots of mortgage people having worked at Lehman would have ever suggested buying those securities at the all-time low for interest rates. So even if they had just put the money into treasuries, for example, and bought five-year treasury notes, the average yield for five-year treasury notes was 0.85% in 2021. Of course, even with the ferocious rally we've had today, they're at 3.64%. So uh, those securities are trading at about ninety cents on the dollar. That's a ten percent hit, which is almost enough in and of itself to wipe out all of their equity and debt capital. Um, so okay. this
0: this problem.
3: Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll I can
0: leave it there. Uh, I thought we should. You know, what is this going to mean? I guess on for the bigger picture. Then we see this bank failure. We we read all about these details. They clearly made some very poor choices here in terms of investing that money. But what does it mean in the bigger picture?
3: Well, I, you know, it, it basically it basically means that the Fed has to stop raising rates and take a take a look around. Um, you know, they've talked a lot about long and variable lags, and we have a we have a really acute problem in our banking system, in as much as a large bank, and there were some other regulatory mistakes made along the way that really slowed the growth of all that liquidity. That, w- that they created in 2021 from going to the very largest banks. They almost pushed it to the smaller community banks and regional banks. So those banks all have quite a problem right now with the securities they bought. Um, they're undoubtedly underwater there. They could earn their way out of this over time. But when the Fed says things like, well, we need to separate monetary policy from what they call macroprudential policy, which is regulatory policy in essence – that's impossible. Um, they're going to have to stop raising rates and make sure that the banking systems assets are stable and that these small community banks and smaller regional banks, uh, don't all find themselves with bank runs and having to liquidate these bonds at big discounts.
0: Are are you worried about this? Like when you look at this, are you worried about the bigger impact here?
3: Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. And we've been, you know, we've been saying back in September, when the Fed was hiking, at that point, we were sort of at the maximum, you know, fear around Fed, uh, monetary policy tightening. And I I was in Boston seeing clients early that week, and then in New York, uh, the weekend or the day of the Fed meeting. And I was telling clients, if the Fed is not careful here, we're going to have a huge exchange rate crisis. And sure enough, I got up the following morning after the Fed meeting and the Bank of Japan had intervened, bought $21 billion worth of yen to try and stabilize the currency. We then had the uh, British pound go into a flash crash that Sunday night, which was blamed on the trust government incorrectly. It, the origin really was the Fed. And that mortgage market, the U.S. mortgage-backed securities market, uh, tumbled in on that Monday morning. And so We thought the Fed had learned their lesson that they couldn't just aggressively approach only inflation without respect to financial stability. Leo Brainerd, who's now moved over to the administration, seemed to comprehend that, gave a couple of speeches to that effect. And that's why the Fed slowed the process. But when the Fed, when Chairman Powell reintroduced the idea of accelerating the rate hikes last Tuesday, that set off this chain of events that Mm. led to this this uh, bank failure so, the Fed really needs to, at this point, probably stop the rate hikes, take a look around, and uh, make sure that the financial sector is stable.
0: Wow, that is so and, interesting. And that's that's where that, we're at. That'll definitely impact us here, too. Barry, thanks for that this morning sure. appreciate that. That's Barry Knapp, Research Director at Ironsides Macroeconomics LLC, used to be at Barclays Bank as well, uh, analyzing the financial situation right now. So if that is the case, if that means that this crisis right now means that in the United States they put a halt to rising uh, interest rates and, and putting all that on pause right now, what does that mean for us in Canada? That's what we wait to see. A statement, though, from the Finance Minister here in Canada says that the Canadian government has been closely monitoring the situation with Silicon Valley Bank and said that uh, Krista Freeland has spoken with financial sector leaders in the Bank of Canada, says they are in close contact with OSFI, and they believe that Canada's well regulated banking system is sound and resilient. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're going to talk about childcare because for a lot of families, the situation is getting better, but it can still be challenging to find the situation that works for you. Not everyone wants to drop their child off. Some parents perhaps would like something a little more flexible. So what about a co-working arrangement? What does that mean? Well, Madeline Shaw joins us now, the founder of NestWorks. It's a co-work, child-minding concept that she's going to tell us all about. Good morning, Madeline. Morning, Simi. How does this work? Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I think on the face of it, the idea of having kids at work is sort of a bit jarring to some of us. I mean, traditionally, we've been sort of conditioned to believe that our, our work lives and our family lives need to be very separate. But um, Nestworks is basically positing the idea that you can actually have both things in the same place, which is to say child minding for young children aged 16 months to five years, as well as co-working, hot desk co-working for adults. So we're in a beautiful space in Vancouver that is sort of big enough that you can be separate, but together if you want, which also alleviates a lot of stress for both the children and the parents.
0: Like in the same room?
2: Not exactly. No, the space we're in—it's called This World's Ours, and it's a center for neurodiverse children and their families. at 10th and Main in Mount Pleasant, and it's a big space. And it's got dedicated child's areas. Like, there's a mini gym, and there's an amazing little sensory playhouse, and there's a reading area. Um, the space—it has dividers in it, and there are also separate rooms, so that you know adults can choose between having you know a smaller quiet space to work or coming into the kitchen area and being with their kids. If their kids, they want to have a snack together, um, that type of thing. And meanwhile, the kids are going to be engaged by professional child minders who um, are trained in a variety of different ways, including early childhood education, occupational therapy, um, that type of thing to, you know, there are toys like there, you know, everything that a child might need to keep themselves occupied or be occupied, but also really secure in the knowledge that their parent is safe at hand, like the children know where their parents are. So there isn't that kind of anxiety of like, don't leave kind of thing that you often see in a child care situation um, at Nestworks. Like the child knows where the adult is and that the adult will come and take a break and have a snack and say hi and, you know, or that they, the adult is accessible to the child if that's what they would like.
0: Right. This sounds like it's also perhaps a little bit more independence for the parent here too, because for a lot of parents, it's just too much to think about leaving a child who they feel needs them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just this idea of attachment is really powerful that, you know, you can safely and happily go to the same place. Like just the idea for a little kid of being like, Hey, I'm going to work with my mom or dad or parent, and we're going to be in this cool place. That's super fun. Like this is a beautiful space. Like it it is you just sort of walk in and your heart kind of opens, like it it's it's filled with natural light, it's it's modern, it's comfortable, it's creative, it's it's beautiful. So the idea that you're going to the same place, this special fun place where, you know, the child gets to play, have some playtime and do some art and or physical you know, movement and the parent gets to, you know, pop on their headphones, get on the Wi-Fi and get some stuff done. Um, is pretty easeful. Like instead of, you know, it, we often go to two very different places to work. Um, yeah. You know, a child is being dropped off while a parent goes to an office or somebody's struggling to make it work at home, which is really hard if you have little kids and you That's, don't have,
0: you know, a home office. That is so true. Madeline, where can people find out more information?
2: Uh, yeah, um, so we have a website at nestworks. And we are open for bookings for the entire month of April right now. We're starting off with a pop-up to make sure that this is going to work for people. And people can book in three-hour segments from either 9 a.m. to noon or noon to 3 p.m. or right. both. And all of that is available on our
0: website. Wow, what a neat idea. Madeline, thank you for that. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for your interest.
2: This is Mornings with Simi
4: reforms will address the challenges posed by repeat violent offenders, as well as offenses committed involving the use of firearms and other weapons, such as knives and bear spray.
0: All right, that is Federal Justice Minister David Lametti. We will be speaking with him coming up in about an hour or so about these proposed reforms to bail and the criminal justice system. We know that Premier David Eby and counterparts across the country have been targeting bail reform as a way of dealing with public safety issues. They've repeatedly said they needed the federal government to act on some of those measures, and it does sound like from that that they have made some progress on that, moving forward on these targeted reforms things that would impact issues associated with repeat violent offenders and those who face firearms or other weapons charges. So now we're waiting to find out what those potential changes actually mean or what kind of an impact they could have. So we thought, let's talk to somebody who knows all about the system and how it works. Tony Paisana is joining us us now, a partner and criminal lawyer at Peck & Company. Tony, thanks for being here. Good morning. What have you thought about this whole debate that's going back and forth about bail reform?
5: Well, I have a couple of thoughts about it. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind whenever this discussion comes up is people generally conceive as the criminal justice system as, as some um, uh, solve-all problem solver for uh, our society's ills. And the reality is, is that when people get, interact with the criminal justice system, we are really the, the last resort system to deal with them. Um, the, many of the problems that result in repeat chronic offending are ones that uh, come from poverty, uh, mental health uh, addiction, and things that the criminal justice system really isn't well equipped to deal with. And so uh, treating the criminal justice system as a, a problem solver in this area is problematic to start with. And, and we should really start be thinking about these problems a bit more globally than focusing just on the end result that you see when people come into our system
0: right so what about the challenge here though when you're talking about people who are repeat offenders and obviously there's a lot of frustration in the public with that like what do you think should be done
5: well one of the things that i think gets lost in the discussion is that the criminal code which of course dictates the parameters around which bail is granted has a number of tools already available to it uh, to deal with people who are repeat offenders and indeed the second uh, uh, way in which uh, people can be denied bail is if they pose a substantial likelihood of reoffending. So, if a prosecutor can actually point to a systemic or continued pattern of violent offending while in the community, one can be denied bail for that specific reason. So, there's a bit of disconnect between the public discourse and what is actually in the criminal code because there is that tool available to them.
0: Right, but are the tools being used?
5: Well, in terms of um, perception of how the tools are being used, uh, it really depends on who you talk to. Um, People that we see and talk to in the system uh, feel very much the effect of these tools. Indeed, uh, one of the reasons why the Supreme Court of Canada has so strenuously objected to the overuse of detention is because people are being over-incarcerated, believe it or not, and the statistics bear that out. And indeed, the people who are being over-incarcerated are from marginalized communities, black and indigenous are the highest rates of over the, the overrepresentation of the criminal justice system. And in many cases in the bail detention context, especially.
0: Right. But the way you mentioned it earlier, when you said that, you know, the, this is supposed to be the last resort for people, if they're not getting any of that other assistance and then they show up there and then, you know, they're given a break because this is the, you know, what, what we're supposed to do, but they're not getting any help though. So we're just going to see them again. So doesn't that just make it a revolving door?
5: Well, this is where I think the reform is necessary, and it's one about dedication of resources, and it is something that the province has some control over, which is what kind of resources are you going to give to this individual if you're going to release them back out on bail? Are you going to set them up with the mental health and addiction services that may assist them while they're out in the community awaiting their trial? Are you going to uh, intervene into those other issues that I mentioned a moment ago to ensure that that revolving door stops once and for all? And until we dedicate ourselves to that more global approach, as I've mentioned, I think we're going to continue to see this problem with this smaller set of chronic offenders, because we are banging our head against the wall, believing that we need to treat them like we need to treat everyone else, when the reality is is they need a special approach. And I accept that part of the equation. But a reform to the criminal code to make it more difficult for everyone to get bail or a, a wider set of, of, uh, of individuals who do not fit the chronic profile um, is not um, uh, an advisable way forward, in my view.
0: So is the onus then, Tony, on the court to say to that repeat offender, what are you? Do you want help? How can we get you help? Like, what do you need to not do this again?
5: So the way bail hearings work is that an individual who has uh, breached a bail order, for example, so that's usually the context that someone finds themselves in if they're a repeat offender, the onus is on them to actually demonstrate why they should be released. Um, That's one of these reverse onuses that you talk about. So when you breach a bail, you're on a reverse onus, and you do have to tell the court why it is. Your release is justified, and one of the things you need to address is why you're not going to offend again. And that often involves lawyers on behalf of accused persons saying, I've got a bed set up at this rehabilitation center or or what have you. But this is the problem is you have defense lawyers running around doing the work of social workers uh, when, in fact, it should be the other way around, that the government should have certain services in place to uh, treat and address these chronic offenders at the front end instead of relying on individual uh, lawyers or unrepresented accused to try to find these resources in the community. It's just not an efficient process.
0: Uh, And that doesn't seem like that's going to happen, does it? Well, we have seen
5: progress in some areas. You know, if you go down to to Main Street and and you have a bail hearing, there are mental health workers that can assist. There are Indigenous liaison officers who can assist with uh, various uh, placements that are culturally appropriate. There are attempts and have been attempts, some of which are very successful, to integrate these social services into the court system. And I think where we should be looking to dedicate our time and resources is to have further integration of those resources so that when an individual like this comes into the court system, they are diverted into the kinds of programs and resources that could really help them to avoid coming back in the future.
0: Right. So it sounds like there is a deal, though, that there will be some changes for people who, you know, use a weapon or there are charges involving a weapon and there were previous charges involving a weapon. Do you think that's an improvement?
5: Um, in terms of um, this problem of reintegrating individuals with the proper resources, no, I don't think it's going to really solve much of anything at all. What it will address is a very nubs, narrow subset of offenders who have a, a persistent <laughs> knack for violent offending with weapons. But like I said before, to be frank with you, uh, in the clients that I represent before the courts, if you violently reoffend with a weapon, you' are at an extreme risk of detention, and judges and prosecutors, I think, understand the public risk that are posed by those individuals, and I don't think they're being routinely released in the community. And the public perception, based on a number of recent events uh, that have been highly publicized, tends to skew that perception to think that that's a much more widespread problem than it is, and in my respectful view, it just isn't.
0: Well, Tony, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning.: No problem. This is Mornings with Simi. In Ottawa right now, there's a lot of discussion about Bill C-18. Now, it's a bill that proposes to establish a system of payments for companies like Google or Facebook, forcing them to pay for the news content that they post on their sites. News content that you likely read and click through right on their website, but not on the site of the news organization that produced it. So would Bill C-18 be helpful to news organizations or would it lead to more problems? Our next guest thinks it could lead to a digital desert here in Canada. So let's find out why. Michael Geist is with us now, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thanks for being with us.
6: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: What kind of problems do you think this could lead to? Oh,
6: I think there are any number. And I think, uh, to be clear, we actually are not talking about uh, content from news news organizations that are read on sites like Google and Facebook. There are links on those sites, and they are read on the original publisher's site. That's really why this bill has become such a source of concern, because what the government is mandating is payment for links, which really does underlie the entire free flow of information and how we find information online. The government is saying when you link to that content, Facebook doesn't publish full text of these articles They publish a link that sends the reader back to the original source, and the government is saying that they still will be required to pay what could run into the hundreds of millions of dollars for linking.
0: Right. Now, Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, has said if that goes through, they're going to, what, just stop posting those links?
6: Well, they don't post. We should be clear as well, right? Uh, Users post those links. In fact, oftentimes, it's the media companies themselves that post those links. And what they say is that they will stop news sharing on their site. They say it constitutes... Uh, less than 4% of the activity amongst their users, so it's not particularly important from their perspective. But when the government says that they envision this paying as much as 35% of the news expenditures of every news outlet in the country, that's newspapers, that's radio stations, that, that's television stations, that's everyone, uh, with basically uncapped liability, because now you're saying you're paying for links and you're paying it as a percentage of news expenditures no surprise that a company like uh, Meta or Facebook will say, you know what, we have to consider the prospect of of stopping news sharing on our platform.
0: And what do you think that could potentially mean for Canadians? Well,
6: I think it's, you know, I think it's one of those cases where everyone loses. You know, there were, I think, a number of options the government had. It chose really the worst possible one, uh, because by grounding what they're doing in linking and what's such a core part of what we do online, they basically forced, I think, the hand of these tech companies. And you know, no one likes to be siding with these tech companies, but at the same time, you know, when you're taking on what is such a core part of the Internet, there are risks there as well. And what I think is likely to happen if they go ahead with this is that you're going to see that we, that we will see the, the loss of news sharing on the platform. I think those users that have come to rely on those platforms as a place where they discover certain things and then click through. will will stop doing that. The new sites themselves will lose revenue and traffic as, as part of it. And we'll have a diminished internet, quite frankly, in Canada.
0: How will they, how does this bill propose to differentiate them between individuals who share links, right? Between friends versus a, a company that is posting links.
6: It doesn't. Um, in fact, the government was asked specifically during the, the hearings that took place on the bill when it was at the House of Commons. So, you know, if someone posts on their Facebook page something about a news article, uh, does that is that captured by the law? And the answer from the government was no. They said, well, what if they add a link to it so that they provide you know the original source to what they've been writing about? And the government responded, well, then, yes, that would bring bring that post effectively into the scope of the legislation. And so it's not that each post is someone sitting there, you know, at a cash register saying, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, for each link. But the approach that they are taking in some ways is potentially even worse. It's saying because you are linking, because your users are posting these links, and as I say, at times it's even the media organizations, organizations themselves doing the posting, you're responsible for payment. And as they talk about the prospect of a percentage of expenditures, you know, 35%, over a third of the cost of news borne by two companies based on linking, um, that creates, from the company's perspective, basically unlimited liability. I mean, what's to stop companies from saying, okay, I'm going to plow more into this, which we might say is a good thing, but that also creates an increased dependence or reliance on these companies and a cost that, as I say, by the parliamentary budget officer's estimate, runs over $300 million a year.
0: Wow. Is this something that Canadian media companies say they want?
6: Oh, you bet they want it. Um, it's a big payoff, uh, particularly, interestingly enough, for broadcasters. And so we tend to think of this as something that would be benefit- ben- benefiting the newspaper sector. And we know some of the hits they've taken. But the parliament that parliamentary budget officer estimate suggested that more than 75% of the revenue will go to broadcasters. That's, that's Bell and the CBC and Rogers. That's not even going to the newspapers. And after, you know, the large newspaper chains, the post medias and tour stars of the world get their share, it's not clear that there's going to be all that much left even for some of the smaller players and some of the independent players. But it's those big voices that have been at the, you know, at, at the forefront in lobbying for this approach.
0: OK, and what do you think is a better way to approach this, though?
6: Well, oh, you get a number of ways. I mean, the most obvious one, frankly, is make sure that these companies pay their fair share of taxes, and use some of those revenues to help fund the sector through various kinds of funding. In fact, you could even think about and the government is thinking about almost a sur tax on these digital companies for some of the revenues that they generate directly coming out of the use of our information. We've already talked about doing that. You could say, we'll take some of that money and we'll put it in. And that gets us out of some of these issues associated with links. Or you could require them much like uh, CanCon funding to say, you know, a percentage of those revenues goes into a fund and we use that to fund journalism. So now we're not talking about funding uh, the bottom line expenditures of particular companies. We're not into linking. We're not into the kinds of questions that arise around the independence of the media. But we're actually trying to fund journalism. The government hasn't chosen that. So there were options. Instead, they've taken this mandated payments for links approach. And in doing so, has resulted in both of these companies saying that they're exploring the possibility of removing news from their platforms altogether.
0: How far along is Bill C-18?
6: Pretty far, actually. So it, it passed through the House back in the fall. And interestingly, the government didn't you know, try to race this through. In fact, they conducted hearings that at first they didn't even want to hear what Facebook had to say about this. And there's plenty of reasons to be critical of Facebook. Uh, you know, we desperately need stronger privacy laws and competition laws and the like. But the idea that you'd say that this, to this company, pay hundreds of millions of dollars, but we don't, even, we don't want to hear what you have to say before a committee, I thought struck me as, as odd at best. Uh, but it passed through the House, didn't get a lot of attention. It's now at the Senate. Uh, and the government in some ways seems to almost be welcoming the saber rattling with the tech companies, despite the fact that this feels almost like a bit like a Thelma and Louise type of moment where yeah. everybody's heading for the cliff and nobody wants to hit the brakes.
0: We're going to have to catch up with you again then, see what happens here. Michael, thanks for your time.
6: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me. That's Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa talking about Bill C-18, which, as he points out, is pretty far along and could drastically impact where you see news and where you get your news, actually. And uh, yeah, we definitely have to follow along with that. See if Facebook and Google uh, face those repercussions and what they will do as a result of that. This is Mornings with Simi.
5: We think there's unintended consequences and they need to be changed. The federal government has indicated that they agree with us.
0: That is Public Safety Minister here in BC, Mike Farnworth, talking last week about the need for renewed bail reform in our system to address challenges with uh, public safety and repeat offenders. This has been an ongoing issue that not just premiers across Canada, but attorneys general across Canada have been lobbying for. And then on Friday, we heard there was an agreement on that. And there are going to be more details forthcoming this morning in a press conference with Attorney General Nikki Sharma and Mike Farnworth, actually. But right now, to talk more about this, we are joined by the Federal Justice Minister, David Lametti, also the Attorney General of Canada, thank you for joining us this morning.
4: Oh, my pleasure to be here, Timmy.
0: Let's talk about these bail reform issues. So, what is it that the federal government has agreed to take a look at?
4: Well, on the federal side, we've we've agreed to targeted uh, changes to uh, some of the bail uh, criteria. Um, I obviously can't get out can't get out in front of uh, my parliamentary colleagues, but we certainly have been discussing. Uh, reverse onus provisions uh, with respect to repeat violent offenders and certain kinds of violent, uh, certain kinds of firearms offenses. Um, and, and that's certainly something we can do at the federal level, and we've committed to doing it at the federal level as soon as possible. Um, you'll hear from, from uh, Attorney General Sharma and Minister Farmworth uh, later today, I believe, uh, with respect to what the province is, is already doing and planning to do with respect to the administration of bail, at bail regimes, uh, and, and doing that more effectively with mental health supports and that kind of thing. And so it's all part of a, it's all part of a larger coordinated package. We, I think this, the general message out of our meeting was we all have to work together on this. Federal government has a role and so do the provinces.
0: Now, I know for some time, uh, Minister Lametti you've been saying that you felt that th- the rules were already there and that the provinces, you know, could do, could make some of these changes on their own. So what changed on your part where you decided that, all right, there are a few tweaks that we could make here, too?
4: Well, this was first raised last, uh, late last year at, a, at a, a federal provincial territorial justice ministers meeting and ministers of public security. And, and indeed, it was, it was the, uh, the acting uh, BC Attorney General uh, at the time, Murray Rankin, uh, first raised it at that meeting. Since that time, we we had delegated our our officials to begin work on it. They'd met around a dozen times since October, uh, looking at possible criminal code changes that could be made. We certainly look. We're certainly sensitive to the uh, to the challenge of repeat violent offenders. We're certainly chal- sensitive to the challenge of of uh, of uh, the of bail with respect to firearms offenses, our priority is is keeping people safe and working within the parameters of the charter in order to make sure that we respect charter rights, but we also respect victims and communities and, and, and people, and people's um, feeling of safety. So we're, we're trying to put all that together. I think we've worked in, we've worked hard and we've worked together. And I think we've got a good path forward.
0: Do you think though, that some of the tools already existed within provincial frameworks to make these things happen?
4: Well, there are there are roles that the provinces have to play, and BC has been a leader on this. I have to admit, uh, you know, Attorney General Sharma had had already taken steps uh, to try to, uh, with Minister Farnworth, uh, to try to improve the effectiveness of of uh, the administration of bail in BC, um, and we're going to enhance that with what we can do at the federal level, and I and I hope that some of the other provinces will look at what B.C. is doing, and I hope that B.C. will look at what some of the other provinces are doing, and, and hopefully at the end of the day, by working together, we have a better, uh, we, we land in a better place.
0: Right. Is there a way to categorize this differently than when it comes to bill reform? Is there a new category to create? I know the concern has been, you know, violent offenders or offenses that are committed with a weapon of some kind. So do you, is that an area that you think can be worked on?
3: Yeah, d-
4: definitely. I mean, there there are Bail is a right. Uh, you're innocent until so proven guilty in our system, and bail is is a right that's protected not only in the Charter but was part of the common law tradition before the Charter, and it was also in the Canadian Bill of Rights before the Charter. So there there is a right to bail and a presumptive right to bail. We're working within the parameters of a number of Supreme Court decisions that affirm that, um, but there are criteria uh, for bail, and we. There have been cases where the burden is put on the person to show why they would not pose a risk to public safety uh, and, and and therefore ought to get bail. Uh, That's, that's the exceptional case, but those exceptional cases are possible, and that's certainly something we're looking at.
0: Minister Lomedi, what do you want Canadians to understand here? Because I think for the general public, we feel like, you know, why can't more be done in cases where there are people who are coming and going in the system, and it is frustrating. There doesn't seem to be any repercussions.
4: Well, that's certainly an, an impression that that exists, and we want I think all of us coming out of that meeting on Friday, all the all the various justice ministers and public safety ministers, uh, we want to assure Canadians that they ought to feel safe and they have a right to feel safe. And I think the message coming out of this is working together. We will uh, we will improve that. Um, and we will continue to monitor the system and, and make changes where we feel we can improve that sense of, of safety and public security.
0: Okay. Well, these changes, when do you see them happening? Because let's face it, federal government isn't exactly known for moving quickly.
4: Oh, I'm going to take exception to that. I think I, <laughs> in, terms passing, uh, in terms of passing legislation, I, I'm quite proud of my record thus far. Um, I hope to get this, uh, I hope to get this introduced as soon as possible. Uh, I have, I have mused publicly and privately that I think I could I could find a runway uh, to have this introduced before the end of June. But we'll uh, we'll work at that.
0: Okay, well, if that's the case, then we will have you back on to talk about that, because that will be fast in in federal government terms. Um, Thank you so much for your time on that this morning.
4: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Appreciate that. That's David Lametti, who is the Federal Minister of Justice, the Attorney General of Canada, talking about these uh, proposed reforms. They did strike a deal, the provinces and the federal government. This was on Friday. You probably heard that announcement. More details are happening this morning where you've got Mike Farnworth, the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General, along with Nikki Sharma, who's the Attorney General, having a press conference at 10.30 this morning. And they will outline, you know, what, what they believe is going. To happen here, how this will impact us here in BC, and so clearly the category that they are working on here is when you've got you know repeat offenders, the revolving door, right? We've heard all of those things. The concern over public safety is that when you've got someone who has committed you know offenses potentially with a weapon, you've got you know somebody who has been coming, going the whole time, and just no, just no stopping it, right? Not not getting help, anything like that. How do you? How do you make that work for the public so that the public feels like, wait a minute, we need to feel safe here. Why is this person continually getting out? So it sounds like they're going to work on that particular category. So where violence is involved and where a weapon is involved, that potentially there could be bail reform in that particular category.